The short story by Alice Munro, Night, is the longest and most complex of the short stories included in the Edexcel IGCSE anthology, and it requires some breaking down. In this post, I'm going to focus on a putative question, which is how does Munro depict her relationships with her family? Now, you can find the whole text, obviously, in the Edexcel anthology. It is cut down. If you are somebody who has a copy of the original, if you like, you will find that the version in the anthology is cut down. And you'll also find a podcast uh, already relating to Night, where I try and break it down into its um, structural form, if you like, to help students get a handle on this. And that article, together with this article, can be found on my blog, www.jwpblog.com. So in this passage, Munro looks back on her teenage years and presents herself as a troubled teenager full of fear and anger. She's certainly no stranger to dark thoughts as she contemplates doing the worst, strangling her sister in her sleep, before reaching some form of understanding in a dawn conversation with her father, himself beset by the troubles of insolvency and a critically ill wife. Munro places her crisis within the context of the ill mother, mother who is well enough as yet to handle most of that work. We do not know what has befallen the, the mother, but Munro has planted clues in her story about the appendicitis. Having set up the family situation as isolated and in poverty, she refers to a conversation with her mother about her operation. It's revealed that a growth the size of an egg was removed at the same time as the appendix. Munro uses anadiplosis to highlight the importance of this news to a teenage girl. The main thing that concerned him was a growth. A growth, my mother said. And here starts the events which propel the narrative. Monroe is clear that she and her mother do not share a close relationship in the modern sense. The information was given and received without further comment. Reflecting on this, she offers the idea there must have been a cloud around that word, suggesting a reason both for the mother's illness and the unwillingness to discuss further such a troubling idea. Her tone is generally conversational. Discourse markers such as so or now suggest a relationship with the reader as she imparts the secret darkness in her teenage years. She's careful to describe the house and the sleeping arrangement. The bunks are introduced with humour as the spitting game is explained in retrospect, noting uh, that in the time described, she was much too old for such fooling. I think students can read too much into this description of family teasing. It need not mean an unhappy uh, childhood at all. That said, with a five-year age gap, the older child enjoyed her role as tormentor and teller of hair-raising tales, whilst acknowledging the asinine nature of such teasing. Catherine doesn't get a chance to comment. This is not her story. After the operation, Monroe is often alone by day and unoccupied. This unusual state of affairs has replaced the chores and the jobs usually performed around the house. One consequence of this inactivity was trouble getting to sleep, presumably since she was not physically tired. Not only this, but her parents have evidently decided to let her have some extra independence. I was left to make up my own mind. She's being treated as a young adult. She makes no mention of her mother's health at this stage, and thus we cannot say whether this new attitude was partly due to the focus of the adults being moved closer to themselves. She tries to make light of her new situation, alone and unable to sleep, not herself. This new sensation allows her subconscious to explore the darker recesses of the teenage mind. 
she describes over several paragraphs with a holding back from um, clearly expressing her desires to build tension, how her mind proposed the murder of her sister. She is clear that there's no vengeance, no hatred. Her sister has evidently done nothing to prompt this thought process, which builds slowly whilst Munro stresses both the vulnerability of her little sister and the love she has for her. In a single sentence paragraph, she makes this clear. The thought that I could strangle my little sister who was asleep in the bunk below me and whom I loved more than anybody in the world. She finally states the precise action she is contemplating, strangle, and reinforces the idea of the thought, repeated, growing into fruition in this subordinated sentence. This idea, to do the worst, drives her out of doors, though we wonder if the replacement of the finite verb strangle with this abstract concept is already an indication that she has no intention of acting as her mind prompts. She questions her sanity, as many teenagers before and since do, as they try to come to terms with momentous issues in their lives. Driven outside by her subconscious death fixation, she notices the peace and calm of nature and finds sleep arriving just as the house begins to stir. She seems to move into a curiously cut-off relationship. She swings in the hammock with her sister, but talks to no one about her fears and is offered no solace or suggested cure. An unspecified time passes before one night she is surprised to find her father on the stoop waiting for her. Or not. We never find out. This is Monroe's stories, not her father's. Their relationship has not been drawn at all at this stage. Now we meet the farmer whose wife is dying and who is beset by financial concerns as well as by the behaviour of his eldest daughter. Again, the insular nature of the family is suggested. We weren't accustomed to such greetings in our family, but she is surprised by his simple greeting. No wasted words here. As she writes, she reflects on her father, not dressed in his overalls, but in the next thing to overalls, but not quite. And only as she writes does she pause to consider her father's ulterior motives for being in her thinking place that morning. If he were going into town, that suggests a visit to the bank or to a doctor. And this thought is recognised at the end of the passage, along with being in love with an impossible woman. This curious phrase may suggest some form of unrequited love affair, impossible to countenance for a number of reasons, or of course, to Monroe herself. The father's response to her telling of her concern is masterly, understated and undramatic, whilst giving the soundest advice possible. The pair talk, possibly more than ever before, and she realises the concern which she has felt as she tells him of her thoughts about strangling her sister. As day lightens and the birds sing, suggesting a new dawn in her relationship with herself, she reveals all, uh, writing her father in a personal direct speech and relating her responses indirectly and with a lack of overt emotion. He simply waits and allows her to speak. She is clear that she would never have spoken if he had given the slightest indication that he knew there was more. She reveals the secret despite her attempts to remain in silence. Strangle her, I said then. I could not stop myself after all. As she writes this, she gives voice to her worry in the only direct speech of this sequence given to her words. His response is calm and engenders calm in her. This powerful figure in her life has listened to the worst and explained it, not blamed her, 
He has set her down without either mockery or alarm in the world in which they're living. The real world and not the world of thoughts such as those which trouble her. Life goes on. As the passage closes, she reflects on her childhood and this figure has made such an impact. Hers was not an upbringing wholly without pain. It's clear from the razor strap and belt that she was beaten, not for malice, but because it was the right thing to do. The same lack of drama which pervades this story is shown in her perception of her father's straightforward response to her sass when growing up. She's able to equate this impersonal punishment with the lack of melodrama attached to his response in the morning. In the words of Alice Walker in poem at 39 from the third part of the same anthology, telling the truth did not always end in a beating. Both the poem and this text place a father as a key influence in the growth and development of a young woman who will grow to be a writer. Both are non-demonstrative and possibly only recognised for their strength long after the events described. Yet both are key to the growth of the child. <laughs>